Amen. Thank you, Derek, for reading for us. It's good to see, good to see you again, Derek. Very thankful for uh, Derek's life and testimony, and, and it's been a rich morning so far. Very thankful for God's grace. It's been so obvious and so felt uh, in this room. And so my prayer is that he'll continue to minister to us uh, for the next uh, little while, that his word would land powerfully on us and that we would be transformed through it. So would you pray with me? Let's take a moment and pray and ask for God to do that. Father, we recognize that um, we're, we're, all, we're objects of mercy here this morning and that we, we did not get here because of our own we did not get here because we're smart people or because we made better choices than other people. We're here because the sovereign grace of God, like a lightning bolt, shot out of heaven and changed our hearts and made us new. And so we herald that grace this morning. And, and my prayer is that as I begin to open up your word here in Matthew 16, that your spirit would come and move in this place. And that we would be helped and changed and transformed. And we would be, have a deep, even a growing affection in our heart for Jesus as a result of this message this morning. And so I just humble myself before you, recognizing my complete and utter total need for you. And ask for your blessing and for your help, despite the fact that I do not deserve it. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, well, we're going to continue our series this morning uh, called Skeptic, uh, answering 10 objections to the Christian faith. And I want to begin this morning with uh, a quotation uh, in his essay, Why I Am Not a Christian. I read this in college for the first time uh, when I took a philosophy class. Uh, Bertrand Russell says the following. Historically, it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. And if he did, we do not know anything about him. One would be hard-pressed to find very many knowledgeable people in the world, anywhere, on any, in any country, uh, who would agree with such a claim. While it's true that many, many people have raised questions about Jesus and some have doubted uh, what the Bible says or even doubted the Bible's veracity at all, the circle of those people who claim that Jesus never lived or that we can't know anything about him like Bertrand Russell is extremely small. Uh, to be honest, it's, it's kind of fringy at this point. Otto Betts, uh, a Qumran scholar, said this. He said, no serious scholar has ventured to postulate the non-historicity of Jesus. Cambridge University professor dr michael grant adds his voice he says in recent years no one has dared to advance the non-history of jesus even john uh, dominic crossan who is the co-founder of the notorious um, uh, jesus seminar which is a group of scholars who really work hard to uh, promote a highly skeptical view of jesus uh, make the following admission john crossan says jesus death by execution under Pilate, is as sure as any historical event can be. Even John Crossan. The Christian faith is grounded in history. The American revolutionary Thomas Paine, who held Christianity in utter contempt in his life, did not himself question the historicity of Jesus. In one of his books, he says the following. Thomas Paine says, Jesus Christ was a virtuous an amiable man, the morality that he preached and practiced was of the most benevolent kind. Unfortunately, that's where Thomas Paine stopped. The fact that Jesus was a good teacher, but not the son of God. And that proposal has been around for a long time. In fact, our own president, the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, once cut up with scissors, a copy of the New Testament in order to remove all references to Jesus' miracles and divinity. I mean, that's one of our founding fathers. After slicing it up, he wrote John Adams a letter and said, what's left of my Bible, quote, is the most sublime and benevolent code of morals 
which has ever been offered to man. Anybody see a problem with that? So we're going to cut the Bible, cut the New Testament up, and then we're going to talk about it in terms of being the most benevolent code of morals ever given. And that's what people do. They want to strip Jesus of his claim to be God and yet and yet conveniently hold him up in high regard as a great spiritual teacher. Well, we all know that Jesus is good. And the question before us this morning is, is he really God? And it's to that question that we turn today. See, people are willing to say that Jesus was a good man, that Jesus was a God, uh, a godly man, even that Jesus was a great man. But they are unwilling to say that Jesus is the God man. They won't acknowledge that Jewish people consider Jesus to be a great teacher, but not the promised Messiah. In fact, even Muslims believe Jesus was a great prophet. But what's really discouraging are mainline liberal Protestants who will call themselves Christians and yet disregard any claim to the deity of Jesus, which happens all the time. I don't know why they go to church. They might as well just stay home and have brunch and and read the, the New York Times. The Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu uh, one of the most revered religious leaders in Africa once said this. He said, following the teachings of Jesus is far more important than worshiping Jesus Christ as the Messiah. What in the world is he talking about? Did you hear that? Following the teachings of Jesus is far more important than worshiping Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Really? So why would we, Desmond, follow Jesus if he claimed to be the Messiah, but not worship him as such? What kind of nonsense is that? You see, many people today claim that belief in Jesus as God arose long after he walked the earth. Uh, the book, the, the Da Vinci Code, has popularized this idea, suggesting that it was not until the Council of Nicaea, three centuries after Jesus died, that the Christians started worshiping him as the divine son of God, which is complete and utter nonsense. Before that... Uh, the, 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 the Da Vinci Code suggests that he was viewed just as a mere man. In fact, Dan Brown argues that Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible in order to transform Jesus from a mere man into a godlike figure. Ridiculous. And people buy that and love it and, and they read it as a novel, but yes, they end up embracing that as truth. Listen to this quote from the Da Vinci Code. Almost everything our fathers taught us about Jesus Christ is false. Christians are the victims of an elaborate and long-running conspiracy. That's from Dan Brown. Well, look, my concern is not with the Da Vinci Code, per se. But the fact that it represents a stream of ideas moving through our culture and becoming increasingly evident. So on these Sunday mornings, what we're trying to do in this series is that we're trying to lay out some fundamental objections to Christianity, and, and we're trying to answer those as heartily as we know how as Christians. So we're saying, hey, bring to us the hardest objections you know uh, to, to the Christian faith, and we're going to answer those according to Scripture. And we're going to show you that Christianity is a highly intellectual faith, and it's very reasonable, and there are good answers to these questions. The first the objection that we dealt with was just the, the objection about God's existence. God doesn't even exist, and we answer that. The second one was the Bible is a book of myths and contradictions and mistakes, and we tackled that. And then the third one was last week, there are many paths to God, not just one. And then today, of course, we come to the fourth objection, which is Jesus was a good teacher. But that's all. Well, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Was he man or more? And to answer that question is paramount because Jesus said, or sorry, excuse me, Paul said, if anyone preaches another Jesus, let him be accursed. So being right about Jesus, according to scripture, is pretty critical. You know, every year around the Easter season, I, I cringe uh, because I anticipate the media coverage. And all the major magazines, all the major news outlets, the cable channels, end up producing some kind of special about Jesus. The very question that Jesus is asking his disciples here in Matthew 16. Who do people say that I am? And you can expect that every year around this time, Time Magazine and Newsweek and other magazines have this cover story about Jesus. You know, you can kind of see it right there on the shelf. Who is Jesus? Question mark. And, and, and these always come out. In fact, the only thing that I really believe, 
about Jesus, these or sorry, the only thing these guys really believe about Jesus, I think, is the fact that he sells magazines well. So they're quite happy to put him on the cover, and that's it. But when it comes to the question, who is Jesus, there's an accumulation of, of wrong answers. New books are being written all the time in order to try to redefine Jesus. But this is not new. I mean, throughout the centuries, uh, it started with the Jews who had been arguing that Jesus was, the Pharisees would say he was demon-possessed, uh, that he did what he did by the very power of Satan, that he was an illegitimate child, that he was mentally deranged. I mean, we see all this just in the New Testament. And his words, the words of Jesus have been scorned and his life has been ridiculed, ridiculed forever. And in fact, one of the more clever approaches, I think, to denying the deity of Jesus in recent time has been to acknowledge, and this is really clever, true things about Jesus. Uh, but, but just not go far enough. So what people will do is they'll acknowledge, oh yeah, of course Jesus was a historical figure. And then they'll acknowledge that, you know, there, there's something that we even like about Jesus. He was a good teacher and, and something that's also, you know, totally accepted today. In fact, they would even go so far as to say some of them, Jesus was probably the greatest teacher of all time. And people have largely accepted that. But listen, that's as far as they go. And they conveniently leave out the last thing, which is Jesus was God. You see, in talking about Jesus this way, they're in a better position to say Jesus was one of the greatest spiritual teachers the world has ever known. But, but, and here's what they say, he never claimed to be God. Indeed, he was not. This is very clever. And that argument has gained a lot of traction. So let's investigate that claim. And I want to do that this morning by asking three questions. So if you're one who likes to take notes, here you go, three questions. What does history say about Jesus? What did Jesus say about himself? That's kind of important. And then the third thing is, who do you say Jesus is? Number one, what, did his, what does history say about Jesus? What do the historical records show? Well, well let's turn to several secular uh, sources this morning. And by secular, I mean pagan, non-Christian, non-Jewish, and generally just anti-Christian sources. That's a fair starting place, isn't it? I mean, if we're, we're talking to skeptics this morning, let's turn to the guys that did not like Jesus at all. Let's turn to those guys. Many ancient secular writers mentioned Jesus and the movement that he birthed, and the fact that they were antagonistic to Christianity actually makes them very good witnesses since they have absolutely nothing to gain by admitting the historicity of the events and the surroundings of the very Jesus they despise and reject. Let's let's first look at Cornelius Tacitus, 55 A.D. to 120. He's been called the greatest historian of Rome, writing about the reign of Nero. Uh, Tacitus says the following. He says, Nero punished with the most exquisite tortures the persons commonly called Christians who were hated for their enormities. Christos... The founder of the name was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. Very clear confirmation of scripture. It is noteworthy that Pilate is not mentioned in any other pagan document uh, that we have, which has come down to us. The only surviving reference to Pilate in any pagan literature whatsoever uh, is this. And this writer mentions him uh, because of the sentence of death which he put on Christ. So he, what, what he's doing here is he's affirming what the Bible already says that Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. Okay? All right, that's secular source number one. How about Suetonius? Suetonius was another Roman historian. He was born in 69 AD. In his book, The Life of Claudius, he states the following. As the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Christos, Claudius expelled them from Rome. This is a really interesting statement. Another affirmation that of scripture as he confirms the exact same event that Luke describes in Acts 18.2, which took place in AD 49. Look at Acts. Look at Acts 18.2. We read this, uh, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, verse 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, 
recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. So Suetonius, what did he say again? He said, as the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Christos, Claudius expelled them from Rome. So clearly, the only thing I'm trying to show here is that Suetonius, who was an anti-Christian, Jesus hater, uh, affirmed Jesus' existence. Let's not talk about the historicity of Jesus when ancient historians are very, very clear on this point. Suetonius was no friend of Christianity, and yet he reports in his book, The Lives of the Caesars, that Christians were suffering and dying under Nero for their faith in Jesus. How about Phallus? Phallus is another one. Uh, One of the first secular writers who mentions Christ is Phallus. He's writing in 52 AD. In his third book of histories, he tries to explain away. This is so fascinating. He tries to explain away the darkness that overtook the earth. At the sixth hour while Jesus was hanging on the cross. And he tries to explain it away as an eclipse. But in doing so, he's affirming the gospel account of darkness that fell on the land during Christ's crucifixion. Even though he gives a naturalistic explanation for it. In fact, Phallus is not the only one who tries to explain away this eclipse. Um, Phlegon is another one. Uh, Phlegon was another secular authority who wrote a historical compendium of 16 books called Chronicles around 100 A.D. And he also confirms that darkness came upon the earth at Jesus' crucifixion. Here's what he says. Uh, Phlegon says, During the time of Tiberius Caesar, an eclipse of the sun occurred during the full moon. It became night in the sixth hour of the day so that stars even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. Isn't that interesting? So there, there, there's both Thallus and Phlegon arguing for this eclipse that we know is very scriptural that happened when Jesus was on the cross. These are all secular sources which confirm, and this is my major point here, the historicity of Jesus, not only his history, but his death, his crucifixion, and and the biblical accounts surrounding his death, like the darkness that covered the face of the earth. And these guys have nothing to gain by doing that, trust me. No, nothing at all to gain. Everything to lose. What's even more intriguing is that two or three of them even mention, quote, a mischievous superstition... That broke out among the Christians in Rome following the crucifixion, which scholars say is almost surely a reference to the idea that Christians were embracing the resurrection. A mischievous superstition following the crucifixion that broke out in Rome. Well, keep in mind that these are all secular pagan historians. They have nothing to gain and everything to lose by saying these things. And what they're doing is they're referencing Jesus, his death, and they're affirming detailed biblical accounts of what happened during and after the crucifixion of the Son of God. In addition to all this, okay, we have Flavius Josephus. And so, so, so many of you are familiar with Josephus. He was born in AD 37, three years after, presumably after Jesus' death, three or four years. Uh, and only a few years later, um, uh, he starts writing and somewhere around 67. And, and, and because of where he lived, he would have been familiar with the facts about Jesus' life and his teachings. And around 67, Josephus began writing for the court historian for the Roman emperor. And in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews, he says the following about Jesus. Josephus says, At the time lived Jesus, a holy man, if he may be called, for he performed wonderful works and taught men and joyfully received the truth. And he was followed by many Jews and Greeks, he was the Messiah. Well, we could cite many other sources that provide us with other non-Christian validations of the life of Jesus. The evidence is, is clear. There's a lot more. I'm just barely sort of scratching the surface on what we can look at. The evidence is clear. And yet, and yet people still reject it. Uh, Ellen, for example, Ellen Johnson, the former president of the American Atheist Organization, said this on Larry King Live. She said, the reality is, there is not one shred of secular evidence that there ever was a Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in Christianity is a modern religion. Really? I mean, frankly, that's an embarrassing statement. 
Ellen Johnson loses all credibility when she talks that way. We've just looked at secular, non-Christian sources who are historians who just said, talked about Jesus' life and even the biblical account surrounding his life. And she has the, the audacity to say something as silly as that on national TV. It's embarrassing. She shows a flagrant disregard for history, and that does not serve anyone well. I mean, you can't talk with credibility until you first go to primary source documentation and look at the evidence. Well, what did Jesus say about himself? Okay, that's what his history says. What did Jesus say about himself? What Jesus said, no ordinary human being, um, I would argue, in his right mind would dare say. Okay, nobody in their right mind, it's an important qualification, no ordinary human being in their right mind would dare say the things that Jesus said. The first thing we note about Jesus is that he taught with great authority. After preaching the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we're told that the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. R.T. France says this about that. He says, any other Jewish teacher made sure that his teaching was documented with extensive quotations and with the names of his teachers to give added weight to his words. His authority was always secondhand, but not Jesus. Jesus did not say, Rabbi X says. No. In fact, six times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard it said. And then he quotes the Old Testament scripture. And then he says, but I say to you. And he even quotes scripture. You've heard it said that the scriptures say, but I say to you. In other words, Jesus is reshaping history with his very words. He spoke with authority. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And what kind of authority did Jesus claim? Well, I've got six, six things right here. Number one, Jesus claimed to have the authority to forgive sin. That's pretty audacious. Uh, when he forgave the sins of, the, of a paralytic, uh, the people questioned his right to do that. So Jesus says, okay, let, time out here. Let me prove my authority to you by performing a miracle. So let me just do that real quick, and then we'll talk about whether or not I have the ability to forgive sins. And so he performs a miracle. Uh, he causes the paralytic to stand up and walk in front of everyone's sight so that nobody can say, oh, he didn't really do that. They watched him do it. He stands right up and he walks out. And Jesus said he did this so that they might know that he is the son of man and that he has the authority to forgive sins. See, I love that because anybody can walk around and say, hey, I can forgive your sins. But what proof do you have, man? And Jesus says, here's the proof right here. Hey, see this guy right here? He can't walk. You all know his name. His name's Bob and he's been paralyzed his whole life. So Bob, walk. And he stands right up and walks. And Jesus says, okay, I can forgive your sins. And people are like, you know, maybe this guy can forgive sins. It's kind of a big deal to say to a paralytic, stand up and walk. And Jesus did. Uh, Incidentally, that's why, that's why, that's why I question these guys that consider themselves faith healers. Because the thing is, um, if there was clear testimony that they indeed were performing so many miracles, it would be so blatantly obvious to everybody. But the very fact that there's suspicion and debate around it proves that something's not right. There's no debate around what Jesus did. No debate whatsoever. Number two, Jesus demanded total allegiance. Jesus said offensive things like, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And then he said, anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's kind of an offensive statement, especially in a family-centric culture like America, where we really pride ourselves in our, in our commitment to our family. And Jesus says, look, man, if you don't love me more than you love your mom and dad or son or daughter, you are not worthy of me. He claims total allegiance in one's life. Number three, he took on the titles that were given to God in the Old Testament. That, that, that really got him in trouble in the Old Testament. For example, we read in Psalm 27, 1, the Lord, which is Yahweh, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And then what did Jesus come along and do in the New Testament? He said, I am the light of the world. In John 8, 12, in the Old Testament, we read the Lord, which is Yahweh, is my shepherd, Psalm 23. And then Jesus comes along and says, I am the good shepherd. 
So he takes on titles that were given to God alone. Number four, he considered himself worthy to receive honor. This is similar. That was due to God alone. But to receive the praise. Think about this. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. And then what did Jesus pray? Think about these words. Jesus comes along knowing Isaiah 42, 8 says, I will not give my glory to another. And Jesus comes along and he says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son. Glorify me in your presence with glory that I had with you before the world began. That is such a loaded statement. I love that. I mean, think about this. He not only asked God to glorify him, but he talks about being with God before the world began. What does that say about Jesus? He's not only saying, pray, give give me glory, bring glory to me. He's saying, do that because I was with you before the world even was. He considered himself worthy to receive honor that was due to God alone. Number five, he claimed, he actually claimed to be the son of God. Jesus called himself the son of God, um, which is kind of crazy because people will say stuff like Jesus never claimed to be God. What What are you talking about? He clearly claimed to be God. Jesus called himself God's son. He had a relationship with his father, unlike anyone else. The relationship that Jesus had with his father is not like our relationship that we have with the father. There are similarities, but there are clear differences. We're not eternal. We, we, I mean, we, we will be eternal, but we did not begin in eternity. Jesus never had a beginning. So he's always been with the father. And we're not equal to the father. In essence, Jesus is. But But here's the thing, is that Jesus claimed... To be the son of God. When Jesus calmed the storm. Also the disciples were uh, just amazed by what happened. Jesus stands up and he says peace be still to the storm. Uh, And he's showing that he is no ordinary human being. And when he does this they worship him in the boat. And then they said to him truly you are the son of God. Does Jesus rebuke them for that? Does Jesus say hey you shouldn't call me the son of God. Because you know I'm not really God. No, Jesus, Jesus recognizes their worship and appreciates their worship and says, this is good for you to worship in this way. Even the demonic realm recognized Jesus for who is for who he was. I mean, if, if even demons are willing to say Jesus was the son of God, what excuse do you have? Even demons. And, and guess what? Think about this. Who know better than, you know, because they're part of this spiritual world. Demons. Even demons recognize Jesus for when one demon meets Jesus, the demoniac, he cries out, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? He says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Notice that language. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? James is right. The apostle James, even the demons believe and tremble. That's sad if the demons believe more than you believe about the son, about the deity of Jesus Christ. So if you can't take it from 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 other sources, take it from the demons. Take it from them. They'll tell you right now, Jesus is the son of God and they run scared whenever Jesus comes, which is why I'm not going to make an issue of this. This is why I said to you several months ago that it is totally appropriate and even encouraged for you to, to, to rebuke things in Jesus' name. And you don't need to feel weird and hokey, hocus pocus about that stuff. Jesus' name means something. It means something. And demons run. They're scared. Verse 6. I mean, number 6. Jesus claimed to be equal with God. Exodus 3.14. God names himself, I am who I am. And then Jesus comes along in John chapter 8, 58, and he says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. In John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And those who heard Jesus say this knew that this was a claim to divinity, and that's why they picked up stones to throw him, to throw at him. They wanted to kill him. I mean, how could Jesus do this? And then on top of all that, when Thomas, Jesus' disciple, sees Jesus after the resurrection... He cried out, ha kurios, ha theos, mu. He says, my Lord and my God. Jesus would have protested this if he were not really 
comfortable with being called the son of God. But when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, Jesus receives that. The claims of Jesus are clear. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be the unique savior of the world. And they wanted to kill him. And they did kill him. And they crucified him for those claims. In fact, in John 5, we read that the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. For not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. See, that's why they wanted to kill him. And that's ultimately why he was crucified. Well, in summary, we've seen that pagan historians verified these biblical accounts of Jesus. We've seen how the, his earliest followers regarded him as the son of God and worshipped him as such. We've seen that Jesus makes those claims for himself. That's pretty audacious. Imagine walking into a room yourself, like this room, and announcing to everyone that you are the son of God. Try that sometime. Actually, don't try that sometime. No, if you tried that sometime, see what kind of reaction you would get. I mean, the fact is, for people to take you seriously, you would have to show them physical and undeniable proof. I mean, otherwise, we would say, who's this guy? Who's this crazy guy? Get him out of here. He's unwell. See, but Jesus said stuff like this over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And then he performed things in keeping with that so that it began to, to, to be kind of real that, hey, there's something to this. This guy isn't just popping off saying stuff. He's doing stuff. He's not saying things merely. He's doing things. He's doing things in accord with what he's saying. Therefore, there's something real about this. So the final question before us is, Okay, what evidences do we have to substantiate all this testimony about Jesus? Uh, and, and what we'll see is that Jesus didn't just make claims. As I said, he performed signs and wonders to establish those claims. Consider these works of Jesus. Uh, this, is, this is amazing evidence. Think about this. In, in relation to human beings, uh, Jesus healed the sick. Um, many, many verses. If you want these verses, come ask me. He healed the sick. He taught with authority. He forgave sins, as I said earlier. He granted salvation and eternal life. He gave the spirit. He raised the dead. That's a big deal. He exercised judgment and said he would exercise judgment over all the world. In relationship to God, the the Bible talks about Jesus as possessing divine attributes. That he eternally existed. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Jesus was in the beginning. He eternally existed. He was equal in dignity with God. He was the perfect revelation of God. The exact imprint of his nature. The embodiment of truth. John 14, 6. I am the way. I am the truth. He was the object of worship. The recipient of prayer. Anybody in here been the recipient of prayer? Have you ever prayed to another person in here? Would you ever pray to another person? I hope not. I'm serious when I say that. I hope not. But would you pray to God? Of course. Of course you'll pray to God. Because you trust. You know that God is different. He was the recipient of prayer. He was the object of saving faith. He was the source of our blessing. In relation to title, he was called the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, Lord, Alpha and Omega, which is beginning and end. God, he was called God, John 1, 1, 18, John 20, 28, Romans 9, 5, Titus 2, 13, Hebrews 1, 8, 2 Peter 1, 1. And in relation to the universe, he is the creator, Colossians 1, 6, the sustainer, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, the author of life, Acts 3, 15, John 1, 4, and the ruler of all, Matthew 28, 18, Romans 14, 9, and Revelation 1, 5. The New Testament is filled, it's obese, it is fat with references to the deity of Jesus. So maybe your problem is still like two sermons ago, which is, do you believe the word of God? Okay, but, but see, we've already talked about secular history, right? So, so we, can't, we can't sit there and say that secular history doesn't confirm some of these things. Nor can we say Jesus didn't claim these things for himself. Nor can we say that the disciples didn't claim it. Nor can we say that the Bible didn't claim it. So look, this evidence is starting to mount up for you. You're going to have to decide one of these days whether or not you actually affirm 
what these sources say. And that, that's because people will suppress this and they'll work as hard as they can to deny it because a troubled conscience is hard to live with. It's vexing. I mean, nobody wants to get up and feel sort of uneasy inside. And so people suppress the truth of Jesus. But here's the obvious solution to that. Why don't you just take your troubled conscience to Jesus? Because he'll receive you freely. So you don't have to suppress Jesus because you're worried about Jesus. Say, I'm worried about you, Jesus, because you really might be God. Therefore, here's my sin and my troubled conscience. Will you save me? And you know, he'll say, oh, yeah, I'll save you. I'll warmly receive you. So don't don't run from Jesus. That's the worst thing you can do. You know, how they say, like, if you see like a, a big bear or a lion, the worst thing you can do is take off running. I'm not saying go out to a zoo and bow down in front of a lion. Analogies break down. But what I'm saying is this with Jesus, you should bow down before him. And if you bow down before Jesus, he will not he will not destroy you. He will receive you. That's huge. That's huge. He is the lion of Judah. You bow before him and he will receive you with mercy. Well, if that wasn't enough, we still haven't covered the greatest proof that Jesus was the son of God. You see, because what ultimately convinced the followers of Jesus to believe that he was indeed the Messiah was not all the miracles that he performed. It was not the fact that he turned water to wine. It was not the fact that Jesus raised the dead, that he healed the sick. What ultimately made the disciples and followers of Jesus believe that he was the Messiah was his death on the cross and and the supernatural events that took place around that death. I preached a sermon on Good Friday about the miracles around the cross in Louisville. And, and I was so stirred by that reality is that God the Father is speaking very loudly during the crucifixion. Think about this, that even when Jesus is hanging on the cross, the Father is speaking. You know what he's speaking? He's speaking with darkness that covers the face of the earth. You know what he's saying? He's saying that sin is serious and that when I punish sin, the world is darkened. He speaks with with all with with six or seven different miraculous events that occur around the cross on that day at that moment. And yet this is what begins to convince the disciples that Jesus was the Messiah, not only his death, but then his resurrection. In fact, Jesus pinned his own authority and integrity on his ability to rise from the dead. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And the Bible says he was referring to his own body. And so Jesus intended for us to accept or reject who he claimed to be and what he taught on the basis of his resurrection. In other words, the resurrection is hardly something Jesus was embarrassed about. The resurrection was something Jesus sort of showcased as his primary way of showing you, I am who I say I am. And proof is, watch me get up from the dead and let me show you. He's not embarrassed about that. And as Christians, we shouldn't be embarrassed of the resurrection. And the resurrection of the Son of God is the climactic moment of his life. And it's the hinge from which all human history turns. During his lifetime, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection, including a final prediction the night before his death. Though Jesus had performed many miracles, including rising, raising many people from the dead, his own physical resurrection was his method of proving that he was indeed who he says, who he said he was. But obviously, due to the nature of such a claim, um, human history has been met with more, has met this with more speculation, skepticism, and relentless examination uh, over the resurrection. But for both Christians and non-Christians, this is the crux right here of human history. Okay? Because listen, let's just be really clear about something. Either it happened or it didn't happen. Right? That's it. Isn't that right? Am I missing any options? Either Jesus got up from the dead or he did not. Right? So you got a choice to make. So here, here's the deal with that. That means that whatever actually happened there really is the crux of human history. Right? Because if a guy really did claim to be God... Okay, hear me out on this. And he got himself up from the dead. Okay, then he was God. He was. So, so either that happened or that did not happen. All right, three facts give us sufficient evidence to conclude that not only was the death of Jesus a historical event, but actually the resurrection as well. Here they are, three things. One, no responsible historian 
denies that Jesus died on the cross. They just don't. Number two, the tomb in which Jesus' body has been buried was found empty. Another clear historical proof. Nobody has found the body of Jesus. This hasn't been found. It's gone. Okay? Number three, Jesus appeared to hundreds of people after his death, including skeptics and others who were opposed to him. So the first sort of thing here we've already considered, that no responsible historian denies the existence of Jesus or his death by crucifixion. The second evidence is really interesting that Jesus' tomb was found empty. It's very telling because people will try to explain it away this way. They'll say stuff like, you know, well, the women, when they went to the tomb, they, 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 they went to the wrong tomb. You know, they found the wrong tomb. And so they thought that's where, do you think they didn't know where the tomb was of the one they loved so dearly? Like, have you ever gone to the cemetery and, like, sort of gone to the wrong tombstone of, of your wife or your husband or your child? That's crazy. Of course not. That is just, it's just not helpful to talk that way. The second thing is that the idea, the other idea is that Jesus' body was stolen. Okay? And so this has been a very popular idea. So the, the, the theory is, you know, Jesus' disciples stole the body. All right. Or or maybe the Roman guards or something stole the, stole the body. The tomb was. But here's the thing. If Jesus disciples stole the body, think about this. The tomb was guarded by heavily equipped Roman soldiers ready to take any intruders to uh, to attack any intruders to the point of death. In addition, the tomb was blocked by a t- one in one and a half ton stone. So it's not like a few guys are going to, a few fishermen uh, that Jesus uh, 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 discipled are going to go up and be able to push away a ton and a half stone. In front of that's guarded by Roman soldiers. Moreover, the Romans and the Jews had no incentive to take the body of Jesus, as all involved were eager to see Jesus dead and to give no more credence to his life. So if, if Jesus said he's going to rise from the dead and then they take his body, all they're doing is giving credence to the fact that Jesus did what he said he was going to do, which was rise from the dead. So they're not going to do that. And, and, and finally, here's this point, is that liars don't make martyrs. I mean, people that, that lie intentionally, think about this, they don't make good martyrs. They don't make martyrs at all. Why would the disciples risk their lives for what they knew to be a lie? Why? Unless they were deluded or deranged. But clearly they were not because there's no historical evidence to suggest such a thing. They wrote, these guys traveled, they spoke, they behaved with total clarity of mind. The disciples, and, and yet they were willing to die for what they had seen. So how do we account for such courage if the body was stolen? If they stole the body, not a single disciple ever changed his story. Everyone was willing to die for the truth that Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again. And on top of all this, how do we explain the many recorded and documented sightings of Jesus after his death? It just doesn't add up. Tom Wright says this. He wrote the, 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 the magnum opus on the resurrection of the Son of God. It's called the resurrection of the Son of God. It's about this thick. And and he says this. He says the historian of whatever per- persuasion, and he's atheist, agnostic, Christian, whatever, the historian of whatever persuasion has no option but to affirm both the empty tomb and other post-resurrection sightings of Jesus as historical events. Simon Greenlee, founder of Harvard School of Law, says this. The resurrection of Christ is the most verifiable fact of ancient history. Again, the historian Josephus writes, When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, he appeared to them restored to life. For the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. I like this. N.T. Wright says, arguments about God are like pointing a flashlight to the sky to see if the sun is shining. In other words, it's patently obvious that Jesus was who he said he was. God has so thoroughly shown himself through a selfless act of love to mankind. It's our hard hearts that reject his sweetness. Okay, so human logic cannot comprehend divine love. We just need to bow in worship. 
We need to read the story of Jesus and see it as the story of the love of God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that insight is meant to produce in us a sense of wonder and amazement and the kind of worship that forms the very heart of an authentic Christian life. So who do you say Jesus is? In his book, Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis C.S. Lewis lists the options available to us in drawing a conclusion about Jesus. And he says this. <clears throat> he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be great would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Such a great classic statement from Lewis. And many of you have read that and heard that. But it, it's just, you just have to, you just have to share that in this sermon because it's just such a helpful way to get at it. Lewis goes on to, to, to restate the apparent options of what has become a well-known phrase. Either Jesus was liar, lunatic, or Lord. That's it. That's the options before us. Another way to put it is either he was a myth, he was a mere man, or he was the Messiah. Well, we are a Christian church. Let's make no mistake about that. And thus, we worship him as Lord. We do. That's why we come here every Sunday and we bow down in reverence and in worship to him as Lord. He is the resurrected king. And here's a, here's a beautiful thought. Today, right now, we worship him with our brothers and sisters from every country on this planet. And I mean literally every country on this planet. There are followers of Jesus he is the most celebrated and worshipped figure of all time. And he will remain so. Because in Jesus, in him, we find life. See, here's the thing. We were made for spiritual communion. But what do we do? We wallow in sin. We wallow in introspection. We were made for joy, but we settle for pleasure. We were made for justice, but we clamor for vengeance. We were made for relationship, but we insist on our own selfish way. We were made for lasting beauty, but we're satisfied with cheap sentimentality. But because of the resurrection, a new creation has begun. The sun is rising. Christians are called to leave behind in the tomb of Jesus all that belongs to the brokenness and incompleteness of this present world. That, quite simply, is what it means to be a Christian. To follow Jesus into a new world. See, heaven is not the end of the world. Heaven is the beginning of a new world. The resurrection is the beginning of God's new project. Not to snatch people from earth to heaven, but to populate earth with heaven. It's God's message that a new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you are invited to belong to that new world. And that means our task as image-bearing, God-loving, Christ-shaped, spirit-filled Christians following Jesus is to announce redemption to the world that has discovered its fallenness and to announce to the world that it has discovered, that has discovered its own brokenness and to proclaim love and trust to a world that knows only exploitation and fear and suspicion. Tom Wright says, the gospel of Jesus points us and indeed urges us to be at the leading edge of the whole culture, articulating in story and music and art and philosophy and education and poetry and politics and theology, a worldview that will mount the historically rooted Christian challenge to both modernity and postmodernity, leading the way with joy and humor and gentleness and good judgment and true wisdom. That's who we are as the church. 
Friends, here's the thing. God entered history in the person of Jesus to deal with all the causes and the results of our brokenness and our sin and our broken relationship with him. Jesus lived the life that we were created to live and he died in order that we can live the life that we now get to live. And by his resurrection, he showed us a new world, new vistas, a world in which death is now defeated A world marked by everlasting joy, peace, and glory in his presence forever. Listen, friends. Jesus was not just a good moral teacher. Jesus was the son of God. He was. He was the son of God, and he is the son of God. You know what? He will return someday. He will. And what you choose to do with him will determine how he will receive you on that day. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is with your life? Who do you functionally say Jesus is? That's a different question. See, who do you say Jesus is intellectually is pretty easy. It's pretty easy to say, I believe Jesus is the son of God. Who do you functionally say Jesus is? Is he the son of God in your life? If he's not, I invite you, I warmly invite you to bow your knee to Jesus this morning. I promise he will receive you. Because what you choose to do with him will make every difference on the day he comes back on how he receives you. Who do you say Jesus is? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that when Jesus, you asked your disciples, who do you say that I am, that that Peter answered correctly. And we answer with him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you said, you said to him, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And what a glorious verse that is. We don't get to take credit for this. Flesh and blood has not revealed this, but God who is in heaven has made this known to us. And how we humble ourselves in front of you, Father. Thank you for your sovereign mercy, which came down like a like a rush that came down like a hurricane that just overwhelmed us and floored us and flattened us out in front of you. And we bowed our knee and we worship you this morning. And so, Father, I pray that you would grab someone's heart this morning, that they would get to a place in their life where they say, I'm not going to suppress Jesus any longer. I'm, I'm going to declare him to be the son of God. And I ask that you would do that for your glory, not for us, for you, and for their good and for their heart's worship. In Jesus' name, amen.